to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is a podcast about criticism and classical music. Today on the show, I am joined by New York Magazine's architecture and classical music critic, Justin Davidson. Interested in being a composer, Justin originally studied music at Harvard and went on to earn a doctorate degree at Columbia. He began his journalism career as a staff writer at Newsday, where he wrote about music and amongst other things, and shortly after September 11th, began writing about architecture. And then in 2007, he joined New York as their architecture critic, and he's the author of the book Magnetic City. For graphic designers, however, Justin might be most known for being the one to break the story of the Metropolitan Museum of Art here in New York, uh, their then new logo back uh, at the end of 2015 with a story that went viral calling the new mark a typographic train wreck. We begin this conversation talking about that piece and talking about seeing that logo and writing that story and and kind of everything that came after that before moving into what turned out to be a really deep discussion about the nature of criticism, the role of the critic, and how he approaches writing about both architecture and music. This conversation is just packed with insight on writing criticism and and how to think about being a critic. Justin so clearly thinks really deeply about this work, and I felt like we could have easily kept talking about these things for another hour or so. If you're a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for $5 a month or $50 a year. Members get an exclusive monthly newsletter that features behind-the-scenes content, links and articles from former guests about design and writing and criticism, as well as previews of the upcoming episodes. Scratching the Surface is fully supported by these memberships, so if you like the show and want to help with its ongoing production, I hope that you consider joining. Just go to scratchingthesurface.fm members to sign up. Thank you, as always, for listening, and enjoy this conversation with Justin Davidson. I really don't write about graphic design very much. Yeah. Ever, but I had one sort of graphic design triumph story, okay. which was the Met logo. Oh, right. That was like one story where it was a complete accident and it just worked out in this weird way and it had, it had some ripple effects. But I. Because you were the one that kind of broke that story, I right? I did. I did. <laughs> it just turned the timing just. It was actually Ariella's um, catch. That happened when I was in grad school thinking about uh-huh. graphic design criticism and how do we talk about graphic design. And so this, it was actually like a a part of it went into my research because uh-huh. there was this big uproar around yeah, it. I completely, like I had no idea that that was going to happen. It was like the least calculated thing. I have to hand it to my editor who put a good headline on that story. Yeah. And kind of really made it, it turned it into a social media thing through, through that. But it was like a, a end of the day, last minute thing. Did you have any idea that that was going to turn into what it, Ended up turning into <laughs> no. So what happened was um, my wife Ariella is the New York-based art critic for the Financial Times. Okay. So you know we're kind of in the same general business, and um, and we both work at home, so this is kind of like our you know joint office, and um, so she got a mailer from the Met, which was I think. <laughs> Four members or something. It wasn't a press thing. It was never announced. But she looked at the um, at the envelope, and she saw this new logo on it. Yeah. And you know, she's been living with the old, you know, uh, uh, Vitruvian Man mm-hmm. logo mm-hmm. for you know years. So you know, going back to her childhood, you know, and the, and the button you put on. So um, you know, they had gradually changed the button to the sticker. And she's yeah. very yeah. sensitive to that kind of thing. So she. She saw this logo, um, and she just handed me the envelope and said, is this the Matt's new logo? <laughs> it was like 5 o'clock in the afternoon, I think, when she did that. Yeah. Um, she had just picked up the mail, and she hands it to me. I was like, well, I don't know. I didn't hear anything about a new logo. Not that I would have necessarily, but I knew that they were opening Matt Breuer, which was right. the story yeah. I was following. So 
she looked at it and we both looked at it and said, this is horrible. Like, this is what they came up with. This is terrible. <laughs> and uh, so I called the Mets press office and I said, we got this mailer. I'm just curious. Is this, the, is this a new logo or is this just like for this one mailer or something? And the person in the press Did office, you say who you were? Yeah, yeah. They okay, said, okay, okay. I, I knew them, and I just yeah. said, I'm just curious. Yeah. I just got this, this okay. on this mailer, and I haven't seen this before. Is this the Mets' new logo? Um, oh, I had seen it. I had just been, in fact, we, I think we had been together at the Met Breuer. So okay. I had seen a logo on the Met Breuer, which I thought was just for Met Breuer. Right. That's right. So when I called right. and I said... Uh, is this a new logo, or is that just, I thought it was just for Matt Breuer. <clears throat> the person whom I was speaking to in the, the press office said, um, I can't answer that question, or I have to find somebody who can address that. Which, like, it was a yes or no question, mm -hmm. and it was a public mailer. And as soon as I heard that, I was like, huh. There's a story here, mm -hmm. and um, so then I started quickly researching where this thing came from, and I noticed that uh, the firm that did it had done the Tate, and the then director Thomas Campbell had um, uh, come from the UK, and mm -hmm. the um, director of Matt Breuer had come from uh, Tate Modern. And so I saw this whole London-based connection, and I looked at some of the other work that they had done, and um, then sort of like followed it up a little bit, all in the space of an hour, mm -hmm. and just quickly trying to pull together some research. Um, and I thought it would make a cute little story, like, oh, here's this logo, Ugh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I sort of typed it up quickly, and then I guess they called me back, and I, I did an interview, and. Somehow, in the space of an hour and a half, it turned from like a 200-word little item mm -hmm. into a somewhat more in-depth story that I just pulled together out of interest. And I fired it off, and my editor put um, a, uh, a good headline on it. I mentioned in the course of my story that the way the letters uh, were, the, the way uh, it was the on the top and met on the bottom, so that the word the is given as much graphic importance as met, which struck me as a complete yeah. amateur in this area as preposterous. And then the, the, the uh, spacing of the letters was such that they all kind of looked smushed together mm -hmm. as if like, mm -hmm. uh, like they were on a bus that had stopped short. Mm -hmm. So he called it a typographical bus crash. And <laughs> That's right, I remember that. That sparked like that, yeah. that went out. And what I didn't realize was that this was, or I guess I had an intuition, in part because of my wife's knowledge of, of the Met and who the people were, it started to become clear that this was part of a whole rebranding campaign that involved um, you know, changing the direction, curatorial directions, integrating Met Breuer into the mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. museum as a whole. So it was now three campuses, the, the um, uh, Cloisters, Met Breuer, and uh, Met Fifth Avenue, um, and that this was kind of a whole, you know, rebranding thing, which clearly started to seem like a multi-million dollar project. And so this was the the only inkling right. I had. And got. I think like wasn't the image with your story like a photograph of that, that envelope? That was literally an iPhone. Yeah, I remember that. That was an iPhone picture of the envelope. Yeah, that yeah. We got. Um, and you know, we put that up along with the uh, with the old the Tribune Man one. Um, and so it quickly became clear that I had touched a nerve because mm -hmm. basically what that did was expose a sensitive point in a whole kind of administrative kerfuffle inside the Met and a lot of curators who were feeling pressured, mm -hmm. uh, pressure from the director. It then subsequently turned out some of that had to do with, you know, various kinds of improprieties. Mm -hmm. Uh, the way he was spending money, the whole right. like, um, plan to extend, right. uh, to, to renovate the, um, uh, to create a, a new wing for modern art uh, on the Central Park side, which was uh, a David Chipperfield project. So it ballooned into this, yeah. this whole thing. But what I was told was that when that story came out, 
uh, a cheer went up in the curatorial department. And that, and it like, you know, everybody saw it and it's like, ah, oh, somebody is saying this. Did you, so I remember reading that from, from the perspective of being a graphic designer, following, you know, being a part of kind of graphic design Twitter, and that that story just went viral amongst graphic designers. Yeah. Had, has, had anything like that happened to you before? Does this happen? That's my knowledge. Okay. That's my knowledge. I, you know, I had no connection with the graphic design world at all. Yeah. Um, so, so no, I mean, you know. Do you have any, has your, you know, you, you're talking about it, and I promise this whole conversation won't be yeah. talking about your one viral <laughs> graphic design story. Um, but I, I think I think you're onto something when, when you kind of say that this was one piece of this larger kind of both issues and rebrand and repositioning of the of the Met. And I will admit that when I first saw it, I had the same reaction as you. And now when I go to the Met, I'm like, that's not that bad. Do you have, has your well, opinion you know, you changed it on? You get used to everything. Um, I think that. Um, what it opened up for me, I mean, what I saw in it was a whole sort of if it ain't broke, don't fix it mm. situation where I thought that, um, you know, there was there was something deeply satisfying about the old uh, logo, but not because of the design of the logo, but because it represented something about the, the, um, the patrimony, the mm. idea of the Met as a custodian of history mm. and of the past. And it sort of represented something ideal about humanity. It was there was all of the kind of tradition and idealism uh, that the Met represents was was embodied in that in a way that was not conscious to me that, that I was not conscious of until I saw it disappear. Um, it was just familiar, mm -hmm. um, and so you know it was like my my bullshit antenna I just went went <laughs> into the red zone because mm -hmm. I just saw like. Okay, what is this rebranding telling me? Um, right. And I was interested in, in the stuff behind behind that rebranding. Yeah. And rebranding generally means reorganization and it means a direction, you know, so that it has some intellectual right. content. And I felt like this was a logo that was sort of screaming that there was very thin intellectual content behind this huge, expensive, right. administrative um, push that seemed to be as much about you know the assertion of superficial things yeah. onto a very deep and complex cultural institution. I, I think this is actually like an interesting way. I was very curious to talk about your kind of. I don't want to. I, I hesitate to use the word process because I, I feel like it's like I don't, I don't mean to like kind of belittle the work or make it sound too regimented. But I'm interested in how you think about your writing and the role of your writing, and so I think. You know, the Met is actually like a great example of kind of this logo, maybe visually bad on its own, but it's also emblematic of these larger issues. And that is actually something that I like about all of your writing is that you can kind of take these built objects and kind of pull out these larger stories. I loved your, you know, your piece on Hudson Yards. I think, you know, did that also where you actually talked about that. I was like, kind of surprised how little you actually talked about the visuals themselves and more about what does this actually mean in New York? Is that something that's important to you? How do you kind of think about that when you go into talk about a building? Well, thank you for all of that. Um, yeah, I think I'm most interested in trying to, to kind of get under the hood of whatever it is I'm looking at um, and trying to understand what it means. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and sometimes it, there's a kind of surface pleasure to things that don't mean very much. Um, you know, when I was predominantly or exclusively writing about music, I had the same approach. Um, in music, the stakes are somewhat lower for any individual thing because you can try things and if they don't work, mm. fine, you move on. Mm -hmm. In architecture, you're talking about things that don't go away, that cost huge amounts of money mm -hmm. and involve hundreds or thousands of people's labor and years to construct and especially in a dense city always have a kind of ripple effect mm -hmm. they always have a kind of presence um, in you know in the city in the environment 
they are dropping an anvil into a bathtub. I mean, it, it's not just the shape of the anvil, right? It's what happens when you drop it. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, and I think that um, I would say that sort of started out in my consciousness um, through the way I got involved and interested in architecture um, as a, as a kid. Because when I was in high school, you know, and, and living in Rome, um, it wasn't just, it, it's impossible in Rome to isolate one building. I mean, yeah. you, you know, there are a few that are kind of these monuments you can walk around, you know, the, the Colosseum. They tend to be antiquity. Um, but for the most part, buildings are, you know, wedged in, they're layered, they cross many eras, the mm -hmm. bits of one period that get smashed into, you know, a new design. Uh, there are older buildings that get a new facade. There, there, there are buildings that reorient themselves toward the street or streets that reorient themselves toward the buildings. Rome is this incredibly dense, encrusted layering of interventions over time. And so asking the simplest question in Rome, why is that there? Uh, which is sometimes right. an obvious question because you see something so anomalous. All you got to do is notice it. You see like a, a piece of an old, uh, you know, of an, of an ancient, uh, of ancient moment, some column piece or mm -hmm. a column uh, base stuck into the side of the building. You know, if you're, if you're noticing at all, you say, well, what the hell is that doing? Right, right. The answers to those questions are always extremely complex. And I had the good fortune of having a teacher who had some of those answers or who pointed me in the direction of trying to figure out what the answers were and kind of looking analytically that way. Um, and some of it just came from biking around and mm -hmm. getting lost. I would like bike in circles for hours because I couldn't figure out you know, how to go in a straight line because in Rome it's almost impossible. Right. And so just learning the geography on foot or by bike um, and realizing how the streets related and what my landmarks were so the it never came from the contemplation of a single object it was always objects you know architectural objects and buildings and, and those elements um as part of trying to decode the city yeah and so when i many years later when i started to look at it you know to, to do that professionally to look at it that way after all of the musical experience i had had um i sort of came back to it in the same way so can you can you talk about how you kind of like go about doing that as and, and how you see your position as a critic writing about these things where there are people who are in the profession, people who are architects, people who understand or, you know, have strong opinions on this versus just a New York magazine reader who maybe doesn't think about architecture at all. How do you kind of present these questions in a way? Do you, are you thinking about both of those groups, or how do you kind of think about who this is for? I don't really distinguish. I, I, I think my readers are, um, by definition, people who read, and uh, <laughs> they are mm -hmm. people who are probably going to be people who are interested in urban life mm -hmm. um, in all its multifariousness. So some of that is, you know, are people who are interested in food or in, you know, drinking or, you know, all the mm -hmm. different aspects of urban life and so I see it as like you know I telling you what all of that cultural stuff how that sort of takes shape in literally concrete form and why um, I think that you know what's a familiar experience to most New Yorkers and really to most people who live in cities because you know it's now sort of broader than just being in New York um, there's this very familiar experience of seeing something new in the urban fabric, whether it's a new store or a new building or a whole new part of town, <laughs> a new waterfront or whatever, and looking at it and having a reaction that may be positive or negative, but, but mystified. Mm. And the question, especially when the reaction is negative, is who let them build that? Right. And um, that is one of those obvious, dumb questions that turns out to be a profound one. And in fact, I teach a seminar at the Graduate School of Architecture at Columbia, which is in fact called Who Let Them Build That? <laughs> because the answers to, the, to that question is always, if you 
actually try to answer it to the point where if you were at a dinner party and somebody asked you that and you answered it, you would be boring them to tears, but in an academic mm -hmm. situation, you want to, to dig in. And what the answer to that question you know, usually has to do with, with history, social history, financing, zoning, politics, the personalities involved, the architects, the architects who were fired, the, you know, mm -hmm. the, the architects mm -hmm. who, mm -hmm. who took over, uh, all, a lot of the projects that didn't happen, and also in any city, but especially in New York, what was there before? Because right. there's very little building on virgin land. Right. So you always have to ask the question, what is it replacing? Uh, and the minute you start taking all of that apart, you have a much more interesting answer to the question of um, why is it like that? Yeah, yeah. Which to me is a much more interesting question than is it good? Right. So I think I started off, you know, like most people thinking about a, a, a piece of architecture, you know, in a somewhat isolated way. And my question was, is this a good piece of architecture? How do I determine that? How do I form an opinion about it mm -hmm. beyond just an emotional reaction? That sort of evolved pretty quickly into, is it a good building for New York? Mm -hmm. You know, is it, mm -hmm. is it right here? Mm -hmm. Is it, you know, what's its context? How does it fit in? How does it operate? And eventually I got to the, the question that kind of guides me every time I sit down to write, which is, you know, why is it here? Yeah. Um, how did it get to be that way? And is that, so is that, you know, regardless of what you're writing about, whether it is a new building or a new development or, you know, even, you know, a show, a piece of music, are you kind of, is, is the why question kind of the important question for you? It is, it is when I'm talking about the city. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the answers to that will quickly tend in one direction yeah. more than in another. Sometimes, um, you know, the answer to why is a series of kind of obvious things. That's rarely true, mm -hmm. though. Um, I'm most interested in projects where the answers are elusive. Yeah. You know, where we're trying to tease that apart actually gives you some some insight into the way yeah. the city works, into, into your relationship to it, and therefore into your own life. And that, I think, is something that whether you're a professional in, the, in architecture or design or urbanism, or a reader who is not, um, I think anybody can relate to those things. You know, yeah. um, there are lots of questions I ask architects and people on construction sites that, I, that inform what I write, but don't necessarily, you know, I had a fairly extensive conversation today with, with somebody about you know how to get uh, uh, you know bug holes out of out of precast concrete. Mm -hmm. Kind of vibration you have to do mm -hmm. you know, in the factory. It's like I'm unlikely to really get into that level of detail right. in a column because most people are you know not interested except maybe in passing. But all of this to say that you know the the not every project has the same level of complexity. And I think you know that you were asking about like whether I have the same attitude about a show or about music. Not so much because there I think, you know, um, it's gone through a series of, of, sort of phases, creative yeah. phases, and then what's presented to you is, is the thing. And you can kind of judge it or experience it on, on its own terms. Let me, I'm going to ask kind of a similar question in a different way. And this might be purely semantic, but I'm I'm interested in how you think about the intersection or overlap or even maybe the modulation between kind of the role of the journalist and kind of, you know, where you are kind of interviewing the makers and kind of, you know, presenting their side of, side of you know, or their kind of story around it or the concrete, you know, kind of informational, the critic, which is you know, sometimes your opinion, your reaction to something, but also could be your opinion of how this relates to the city, but then also like that, that kind of, you know, activist role a little bit of saying like, this is not good for the city, or this is good for the city. Do those, are those in conflict? 
are those different things? Is Am I kind of like breaking this apart too much? Do you, are all those the same thing? You know what I'm, you know what I mean? Um, so I am grateful to be in a privileged position where um, I can have a reaction to something uh, that may be superficial, it may be emotional, it may be, you know, kind of not terribly well considered. And I then have the responsibility to integrate mm. that into a subsequent series of um, steps, which are gathering information, doing my homework, you know, sort of so, so I can right. form that opinion, not as a way to give meat to an opinion I've already formed, but as a way to refine it and sometimes to reverse it so that right. the what I wind up expressing at the end of that process is hopefully um, more nuanced, more considered, um, hopefully not watered down by that, by that, by that process, but just, you know, argumentative, building yeah. a case. Yeah. And I think part of that has to do with the publication I write for and the kind of messages I got early on from, from, from editors, which was the strongest piece of writing is, um, has a kind of moral urgency and um, mm. argues a case. Mm -hmm. You know, they really wanted from me, and it was really great training, I think has, has sort of like I've internalized that, not just a reaction, but a kind of, um, you know, prosecutorial yeah. approach. Yeah. And by prosecutorial, I don't mean like deciding something is bad ahead of time right. and, then, and then convincing other yeah. people what it is, but rather taking a set of facts and assembling it into into an argument. So um, the activist part of it is boils down to letting readers know, whether explicitly or not, that um, architecture is part of public life. Mm -hmm. um, it is not optional, right? Right. You know, <laughs> the, the one yeah. huge difference to me psychologically about writing about architecture as a process of music is that, you know, any other art form you can choose to engage with or not, mm -hmm. right? There are people mm -hmm. who love theater and people who never go to theater. Right. Uh, you don't have that option with architecture. Um, even Ted Kaczynski. <laughs> You know, he, he lived in architecture. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. In fact, I think he, you know, designed and built his his cabin, which is now in the Smithsonian. Um, so, yeah, you know, architecture is not something you can really opt out of in a in a city, and how it's put together really matters to everybody, no matter how private the space it encloses mm -hmm. is, because cities are so shared. And the ripple effects of doing any one thing are felt at a distance. Yeah. That um, that this matters, and so because it matters, and because everybody has an opinion and everybody has a reaction, um, everybody is capable of integrating that reaction into a kind of a set of mm -hmm. you know reasoned conclusions and therefore a kind of idea of what can and should happen in the future. And that's the essence of, that's, there's a kind of democratic baseline about that, right? That's, that means that like, if you don't like what's happening, you can go to your community board, you can run for the community board, right. you can express your opinion, right. you can go to all of the public hearings, you can protest, you can write to your, you know, elected officials. Um, and if you do like what's happening also, you know, everybody has a potential role to play. Um, and the more informed that role is, the better. That sort of all go, flows yeah, into yeah. what happened. We have this incredibly complex set of rules that governs what developers can do. Those rules are subject to, you know, change and, yeah. and massaging. And that's all part of the democratic society we live in. It's a very different kind of engagement from just deciding whether you're not going to buy whether you're going to buy a ticket or not. Right, right. You know, or whether you're going to tell your friends to buy a ticket or not. Right. It's a, that's a binary thing. You go or you don't go. Yeah. You like it or you, or you don't, right. or right. you know, you recommend it or you don't. This, when you're dealing with architecture in the city, there's just so much more going on. Yeah. 
which makes it interesting to write about. I, I have like, I mean, I could ask you like 20 questions based <laughs> on that. I have two that, that may or may not be related. I'm going to ask them to you together and you can kind of pick them apart if you want. I think what you said about, you know, you kind of having a snap judgment, you having, you, you'll have an immediate opinion and then you know, part of your job is to then kind of like research that, interrogate that, and kind of go deeper on that. And then you also talked about the difference between writing about architecture and, and writing about music. And I was interested in those two subjects and if there's any overlap or intersection there. Is Are you going through the same process, whether it's a building or whether it is a, a piece of music or a show or a performance? Or how do those, how do you kind of approach each of those differently? At this point, no, because just the way I cover them is different. Mm. Um, my coverage of music, which has become a somewhat smaller part of my life than it used to be, um, is much more passive and reactive. I go to something, I have a reaction. It's, it's accelerated. Yes, I've been sort of like, say, okay, well, why did I have that reaction? You know, it's like if you come home for a con from a concert and, you know, if I come home from a concert and my wife says, you know, how was how was it? And I say, good. Yeah. That's great. That's one word. I still have a lot more words to <laughs> right, go. Right, and right. So you have to kind of flush that out. Um, but I don't feel the need to drill down as much. It's, mm. you know, and maybe it's because I spent a lot of years kind of, you know, doing that and, and there's sort of, you know, um, there's background there, but but I think just inherently the um, the kinds of stories that I'm interested in telling about cities and, and about the things in them um, have a kind of inherent complexity mm -hmm. um, that you know not all music musical events have or need yeah, to have, yeah. you know, they, they, they are more abstract sometimes, They're, they could have more directly emotional. But also I think that, you know, um, yes, opinions and reactions to architecture and bike lanes and all that are subjective, but your reaction to music is really fundamentally subjective. Mm -hmm. right? <laughs> what it does to you on a physical or emotional, psychic level yeah. is very personal. Um, you know, you can recognize something as well done, even if it doesn't speak to you at all. You can recognize something as a you know, total piece of kitsch, but somehow it touches something <laughs> in you when you react. And so you can write that. When you're talking about putting up a building, you know, that has to perform a lot of functions. It has to meet budget. It has to serve its the people who pay for it. It has to serve the general public in some way. It has to operate, you know, at many different scales, the, you know, the scale of the skyline and the scale of, you know, the, the sort of the things that you can touch. It has to, you know, have, it has to meet all these codes. There's so many things it has to do that one of the things that you are looking at is how it balances all of those stretches and right, tensions. Right. That is somewhat less subjective. You know, so ultimately whether I like a particular, you know, aesthetic gesture is less important than, yeah, yeah. than how it does all those things. And there's a kind of meaning in those things. Those are not just technical requirements. Those how it breaks all of that right. stuff down, gets right down to the meaning of architecture and therefore the meaning of our priorities and how we live and what we choose to devote our resources to and who uh, is important and mm -hmm. whose mm -hmm. needs we accommodate over others. And, and you know, there's always trade-offs mm -hmm. in architecture. So what are those trade-offs? Right. What are right. you trading for and for whom? Those are, those are you know, those are interesting questions that are that have an element of subjectivity to them, but they're not just like I like it or I don't like it. Right. Are there things from writing about architecture that have changed how you think about music or writing about music or vice versa? Are there things from writing about music 
playing music, writing music, that have influenced how you write about architecture? You know, it's hard to say because it's all sort of swirls around the same <laughs> yeah. box. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of hard for me to separate out which things have influenced what. But I would say a couple things. One is that my, ex my training in music was as a composer, which mm. means taking nothing and making something that exists out of it, and it exists in the real world, it exists in sound, mm -hmm. and it has a physical dimension. Um, writing is not like that. It exists, but it's it's words. Right. You know, it's it's words on a page. It's it goes directly from, you know, it's a sort of communicative language that goes directly from one brain to another. Music actually has to like produce sound waves and exist in space and in time, mm -hmm. and in that sense. It's somewhat like architecture, um, and it is, um, there is something, in, it does have something in common, music has something in common with architecture in that it may start from a kind of intuitive feeling, mm. right? There may be something you can't put your finger on about like, what it is you're trying to say. Um, it, you just hear something, you have an impulse, you have a movement that you want to make, you have a sound that you want to produce, a scream you want to utter. And then you get to put it all together in a way that that can be transferred to other people to execute and produce right. something that exists right. for the public. Um, I was recently talking to Frank Gehry about mm. this, and he was talking about a feeling. I said, well, how do you safeguard that intuitive impulse, yeah. that artistic, emotional impulse at the beginning through a process that takes 10, 15 years, involves thousands of people, hundreds of millions of dollars, innumerable regulations, the realities of trying to pour concrete and what materials can do and what mm -hmm. metals reflect the light in which ways. <laughs> You got to keep to budget, like all of those things. How do you wind up at the end of that with anything that even remotely resembles the impulse, yeah. the human impulse yeah. that you started out with? Um, so that to me is on a very large scale the same thing that happens when you sit down to yeah. write, especially say a complex orchestral work. Yeah, I mean it's funny that you even bring up Gary because when you were talking about kind of your reactions to music, I I think a lot about that video of. Um, Philip Johnson crying when he's encounters Bill Bow for the first time and that kind of emotional kind of response that to me and I've have not cried that much but I've definitely been in buildings that have you know moved me emotionally just like a you know a piece of music and so I think there's something about um, I think that's interesting that, that you kind of were talking to to Frank Gehry about about the idea of what kept kind of pushing him mm, about that. Mm. And, and he had a, a lot of answers, some of it having to do with the technology they created, mm, you know, mm -hmm. sort of um, 3D modeling that they do. And, but it's all in the service of trying to hold on to that. Right, right. You know, and, and often pushing against circumstance, against developers, against all of the needs, and, and you know, sort of just being very clear in your mind um, what. Uh, where your leeway is, hmm. you know, it's not, he did say, and this really struck me, that it's not a matter of compromising. Hmm. It's a matter of understanding when you're dealing with a certain level of complexity where you can tuck and nip, hmm. still get what you want, you know, and, and make it stronger, make it more, um, you know, make the effect doable and therefore, you know, yeah. um, protect its effect at the end. And it's something that I recognize both from writing music, which is like, you know, yeah, sure, you can ask a uh, clarinet player to, to play a pianissimo high F out of silence because you like the sound in your imagination, that sort of thing, that whistle coming out of nothing and getting really loud. But actually what you're going to get most of the time is a really horrible squawk. So maybe mm. you want to rethink that because... Yeah. That's really, really hard to do, and it's not going to be reliable. You know, maybe you want to achieve that same effect in a different way. So 
that would be, you know, one yeah. analogy. But the other is just in writing words. You know, there are there are people who say, "This is I thought about how to do this sentence. This is the way I want it." And to an editor who may react, you know, negatively to that, like tough. That's, yeah, it's yeah, this yeah. or nothing. Like, yeah, leave leave my prose alone. I'm not like that. I'm I'm much more like, okay, you don't like that word. I'm not really sure why. I don't really get it because it seems yeah. fun to me. But you know what? English is a really w rich language. If you don't like that one, I got ten more where that came from. <laughs> no skin off my back to come up with yeah. another word. Or to rewrite the sentence three, four, five different ways, I'm still going to get what I want because I know what I want. And how I get there matters less than saying what I want to say. Mm. Is that, did that come? I want to kind of go back in time a little bit and talk about your background and, and, and perhaps how that kind of influences everything that we've been talking about. You studied music and you mentioned you wanted to be a composer and you mentioned something I thought was interesting is that when you're writing about music that it's different because of that background. I, I don't mean to kind of like go into your, you know, teenage or early adulthood mind, but what did you want to do? What was it about composing and, and writing music that interested you? Oh, I was just, you know, so immersed, I mean, just besotted with the whole idea of the musical life. I mean, the word musician had such incredible glamour for me, and, you know, it's such, there are so many different ways of being a musician, but, you know, just being able to create something out of, out of nothing, um, and, mm -hmm. you know, I was never... I mean, I studied classical guitar for a long time, but my motivating passion, you know, certainly by the time I was sort of in high school and into college, was not really interpretive. It was mm -hmm. it was uh, creative, um, and so just you know, I I wanted to be creative. You know? Yeah, I wanted yeah, to, like, yeah, yeah. I wanted that experience yeah. of sort of having something come out of my mean. brain and become yeah. become a reality. Um, so I studied that intensively, and I also just, you know, studied other people's music as you do, and, you know, got a tremendous amount of pleasure and, you know, richness in my life because of that. There came a point where I had structured my life so that, as you can when you're a student, so that there are external expectations of you. Mm. Mm -hmm. for activities that the rest of the world does not care about. Yeah. Um, that's important because you need to be, you're at that point in your life where you are motivated by fulfilling other people's expectations. Mm -hmm. That really, it would, I discovered that that was something that really mattered to me. Yeah. And when that scaffolding fell away, it's a traumatic thing, or it can be. It can be liberating. Yeah, but it can yeah. also be this moment where you're like, okay, now, literally, there is not another soul in the world that cares what I do next. Mm -hmm. um, so it all has to come from me, and I have to create that need. I have to get other people to experience the same need that I have for my music. That was a kind of bit of a slow motion existential crisis mm -hmm. for me because while I had acquired a fair amount of technique and uh, knowledge and you know sort of history and you know practice practical experience what I found was that I was not first of all I didn't have that kind of internal compulsion where like I had to write music because mm -hmm. uh, that was the only way I really knew how to be a fully fledged human being, which I think is it's not a prerequisite, it's a strong motivator. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was not like that. Um, and I guess when I really got down to it, it was like, I know a lot about how to say certain things in music. I'm not sure I really have this deep conviction of what I want to say. Mm. And I had been to so many concerts where I had that same feeling about many other composers. Mm. where like it was very professional they were very clear about how they went about getting certain effects but there was a kind of something 
missing mm-hmm. for me in that some fundamental vagueness about what it was that was this impulse that started the whole thing going. And I thought, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to have that reaction to my own music, and yeah. I certainly don't want other people to have that reaction. Yeah. And I struggled against it. Now, I think it's possible, and maybe this is another conversation, but I think it's possible that had the timing been different, had the era been different, had there been other kinds of opportunities that I pursued, maybe I would have gotten over that hump. Mm. Maybe I would have kind of like muscled past that. And in the end, basically, well, not in the end, but you know, at that point in my life, I, I sort of moved in a different direction. It's, wasn't a, it wasn't a big jump for me to, to feel like you know, I was writing words instead of music. It didn't feel like a completely different thing. It's still basically the same. And... So how did you realize, you know, or, or was there a moment or what was that like when you realized, I don't have to write music, but I could still be in this world that I still love, I think, <laughs> by writing about music? You know, it was not, a, that was not an existential decision. None okay. of it, I mean, again, in retrospect, it all sounds more portentous. Than, yeah, yeah, no, I know sort of like yeah. self-defining than I ever experienced it. Uh, for me, it was just like, Today, I'm maybe not going to write music. Mm. Maybe I'll go back to it tomorrow. And then maybe tomorrow I did, but then the day after I didn't. You know, it was sort of like <laughs> incremental that way. Um, and writing about music was really the same. It was basically, I finished mm. graduate school. I, real, I did realize that I was, you know, graduate school is fundamentally a, you know, a PhD program is fundamentally a preparation for, for an academic life teaching and I decided that involved a bunch of trade-offs I didn't want to make, mm-hmm. predominantly leaving New York. Mm. Um, and um, so I was just kind of looking for, for opportunities simply to get like paid to do anything right. in music and maybe even not. Um, and so that was just a matter of like latching on to one thing and then another and then another. It was not... At, at any point, something I thought, oh, this is like really what I'm born to do, um, until I was doing it. Right. You know, right. And I think, you know, there were, there have been a lot of things like that in my life that, you know, sort of when I'm doing them, all of a sudden it becomes a snowball and then that's yeah. my life and I'm very immersed and passionate about it. But it's not like I ever had this vision and then went yeah. after it. And then was writing about architecture the same thing where it's like, you know, suddenly you were. Yeah, you know, I had the. Good fortune. So my first real job was um, uh, writing for Newsday, which mm-hmm. was a Long Island and at that time New York City based publication. And um, I was writing a lot about music, going to a lot of concerts. Um, and it was kind of a cool position to be in because they were willing to devote a fair amount of space and a, a full time mm-hmm. salary to classical music. Um, but there really were not too many people, if any, at the paper who actually cared about it. Mm. <laughs> it. It was sort of maybe the end of a moment where like, they felt like they should because that's something that newspapers did, even though they weren't so convinced how important it was or that that was necessarily a good you know, use of resources. Mm-hmm. But, you know, whatever. They had me yeah, and yeah, yeah, they yeah, used yeah. me and I was doing it. But... Whenever I said, hey, you know what, there's not that much happening, say, in the summer, I'd like to pursue some other projects, mm. um, maybe you know, do some other stuff, they were like, great, fine. So I would often take summers off, and I would do various other kinds of journalistic projects. It had nothing to do with music, and they were very varied. Um, some of them didn't have anything to do with the arts or culture or anything. They were just journalism, and they were sort of time-consuming reporting jobs, um, which I loved doing. Um, and so when I started to say, you know, it was really basically in the aftermath of 9-11 where mm-hmm. architecture and legal in mm-hmm. lower Manhattan became such a news story um, that I said, you know, we're covering this in 10 different ways. We're covering the politics and, uh, you know, counterterrorism mm-hmm. and the war, you know, and all this stuff, but we're not really dealing with the architecture. Right. And 
So I had started to do some architecture already, but at that point it became like, okay, you do it, you know, and it was just sort of stepping <laughs> yeah, into yeah. To a, a void for which I was questionably prepared, I guess. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that has always been my life, which is kind of learn on the fly and get somebody to pay for my education and, you know, like, yeah. kind of just keep doing it intensively. And, um, and so I did. And, um, Again, you know, that was maybe an accident of, of, uh, of timing as much as anything else. Um, but I'd say, you know, maybe in retrospect, what holds all of this stuff together is, you know, what's really sort of there at the bottom for me is, you know, the desire to create, whether it's a media yeah, or in words, yeah. and the desire to grapple with complicated stuff and try <laughs> to clarify them for myself. And to try to get across an experience um, and a sort of deep and rich body of knowledge that one could experience totally superficially and on the fly. And my job has always been to kind of invite readers to experience it a little bit more deeply. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, you can hear a piece of music and it either sounds nice and you walk out and you're like, yeah, that was pretty good. So my job is to say, hey, excuse me, um, before you go home, can we just talk about this for a minute? Like, what did you really feel? Like, how did you like this? Did you notice yeah. that? Do you know that this other thing? Um, you know, and the same thing, same thing with yeah. architecture. It's just about trying to get readers to take another step. I love that. And it brings up a question that I think can kind of lead into, I have just a couple questions to kind of wrap up. And I think thinking about your time at Newsday, and you know, having a salary and getting to write about classical music and then doing these other things is um, a nice, it's like a good example of how much kind of journalism and publishing in this whole world has kind of changed since then. And I'm, I'm curious if you have thoughts about kind of the changing state of the critic and especially architecture criticism and, and even, you know, classical music criticism to an extent that these types of positions are just fewer and fewer. Um, does that change how you think about the job that you're doing? Do you think about that? Where do you see this all headed? Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, look, you know, I, I feel, you know, um, very lucky. I kind of have always felt, really, from the time I began, because, you know, it's easy to think that the sort of crisis in criticism or in journalism or in media is a recent vintage. It's yeah, not. Yeah. It's just been changing constantly. But, you know, like we kind of knew this was going on 25 years ago. If And I'm sure people, you know, before me had the same sense, too. But, um, you know, I kind of have always felt that... Um, I was standing on a really nice rock mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, the, the water was coming up all around me and as long as I could hold on to that rock, I was, I was fine. Um, that's sort of a metaphor I came up with for, <laughs> for my professional life a long time ago and yeah, I, I like never that. thought it was going to be quite so literal or global. <laughs> that's not funny, but it's kind of you funny. Know, so in a sense, we're all in that position. Yeah. Um, Look, for me, having a salary and benefits and just kind of the mechanics of, you know, a regular job was everything. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, I was a union member and I am delighted to say I am again. Um, you know, these things matter incredibly. And for me, it meant the ability to, you know, make decisions about what I was writing, how I was writing, more independently than if I had been a freelancer. And I have been a freelancer, so I know exactly what that means. You know, I, I have written plenty of pitches, I have been turned down for many, many things, I have you know, I continue to freelance sometimes, you know, so I know exactly what it means to to put a huge amount of time into trying to develop an idea, try to sell somebody on it understand that it's not right for them and maybe not now and maybe not ever realize that all that time you put into it is yeah. for naught and you're not going to get paid for it or if you go go ahead and do it you're going to feel underpaid by the time you finish you no know, that's all right. something i understand in my bones and it 
I literally think about every time you know my paycheck arrives. Mm. Um, so that is a structure that I think is, um, of course, it's endangered, and I think that it's because employers, the kinds of people who rely on what we do, don't really understand what they're paying for. Mm-hmm. Um, partly, of course, it's a, it's a buyer's market. There are a lot more people who are willing to, you know, um, right. yeah. to, to, yeah. to, to pay the price, mm-hmm. to subsidize. Look, basically, it, what it comes down to is people who are starting out or people who are, you know, uh, freelancing and you know, trying to trying to do this and pursue their their you know ideas um, in an idealistic way, they're effectively subsidizing these companies. Mm-hmm. And you know, obviously that shouldn't happen, but the result is that the employers don't really get what they should have. I mean, mm-hmm. you know. I know for myself that if I had not been able to, if I had not been lucky, I probably would have gone in a different direction because, as I said, with language, you know, I'll yeah. pick another word, I probably would have picked another life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? um, and I may yet, you know, it's <laughs> right. like, who knows? Right. Um, yeah. So I think that that is really tough. I'm always gratified to see when somebody does, you know, get one of these jobs. I think you know, maybe a little bit here and there, they're starting to put together some slightly different models. Yeah. Maybe I think you know, um, Mark Lamster's model yeah. in Dallas, yeah. where he's half between teaching and and the newspaper is kind of interesting. There are some nonprofit models, but you know, that's all sort of around the edges. Yeah. Fundamentally, to get somebody, let me just put it in the simplest way. Like, I um, will go and put in a day visiting a construction site or talking to an architect without being certain that I'm going to write about it. Mm. Because I might be interested, I might think maybe there's a column there, but whatever, it's like how I apportion the time that my employer pays for. Right, right. right. Yeah, so I'm still working, I'm just, it may not wind up with a column, and I'll, you know, text my editor and say I'm going out to this, I don't know whether it's going to work out or not, fine. Mm-hmm. If that's on me, yeah. if that's my yeah. risk, if it means that I'm doing that instead of doing something I will get paid for, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. And I'm going to be less well-educated. And less, now, I, by all means, you know, and I hope you don't edit this out, I don't want to leave the impression that freelancers are, you know, therefore less well-prepared or less, you know, yeah. I know that, you know, the conscientious, conscientious people who will do this against all the odds, you know, they're, they're going to put in that time really. And, and really sort of, you know, want to build build themselves up. But but in the end, what it means right. is that no, the is subsidizing work that the employer should be paying for. My last question, I'm curious what you're thinking about now. What are the subjects that you either haven't written about that you want to write about? Are there things happening in the city that <laughs> you're excited to be writing about? What's, uh, what's next? Uh, well, it's, you know, always changing. I have this weekly column, so I keep on, you know, trying to find the thing for this week or, you know, try to plan a few weeks down the line. At the moment, I was out at the Brooklyn Botanical Garden today. Mm. They're uh, opening a new garden by Michael Van Valkenburg, a new um, uh, sort of just ramp, basically a sort of uh, a switchback accessibility ramp, which could have been a very basic kind of design, but they got Weissman Frady to do it as a, an extension of their visitor center, so it's part of the visitor experience. So I'm trying to figure out whether that makes a column. Mm-hmm. I'm distressed that the um, Soldiers and Sailors monument on the mm-hmm. west side is falling to bits, and trying to figure out whether you know I can translate that distress into, mm-hmm. into a persuasive column. I mentioned I'm interviewing, I, I interviewed Frank Gehry, so I'm sort of editing that conversation. Um, I am, I'm always on the lookout for stuff that's happening in other cities that can, where the, where those things inform each other. Mm -hmm. So for instance, I was, um, at the, um, Trans Bay Terminal in San Francisco, I guess Mm -hmm. it's now called the Salesforce Transit Center, um, to take a look at that because, you know, just the idea of, uh, a huge transportation infrastructure project in the heart of the city yeah, yeah. and what that does to the city around it. Seems like that applies 
certainly to New York. Uh, we could do the new bus station also, mm -hmm. um, but you know, really every other city. So the issues that it brings up are both very specific and interesting and also generalizable. Um, I'm kind of interested in, I don't really know very much about it, but I'm kind of interested in um, seeing what the sort of Walton family sponsored design excellence oh, right. program in Bentonville, Arkansas yeah, yeah. has yielded. You know, uh, that's an interesting one. That's, yeah. uh, I'm not really sure about that. Um, so anyway, just those are a few of the things I'm working on right now. Justin, thank you so much. This was such a great conversation. This episode was recorded on November 13th, 2019. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.